We also need to have laws against advocating violence. Anti-Semitism isn't just a Jewish issue. It isn't a left or right issue. It is a societal issue. My government pledges to embrace the definition of anti-Semitism adopted by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. An opportunity uh, to engage with the Jewish community. Social media has become the most toxic amplifier. The Australian Jewish community and its representative bodies stand with Israel. A recent report from the Executive Council of Australian Jury. Executive Council of Australian Jury. The Executive Council of Australian Jury. Executive Council of Australian Jury. Welcome to the Executive Council of Australian Jury's Jewish World podcast, where we review current affairs and major events affecting Australia and world Jewry by speaking with leading advocates for Israel and the Jewish people. My name is Alyssa and I am part of the Executive Council of Australian Jury team and I'm your host today. The Jewish community is diverse. We all share similar traditions, values and beliefs but come from all across the world. In this episode of The Jewish World, we will be unpacking the story of Sephardi Jewry. Sephardi comes from the Hebrew word Sephard, meaning Spain, and refers to Jewish people who have their cultural background in Spain, Portugal, North Africa, and parts of the Middle East. Jewish communities thrived in many North African and Middle Eastern countries for centuries, enriching and being influenced by their societies. Here with us to share his insight is Rabbi Isaac Shoah. Rabbi Isaac Shua holds multiple positions, including Operations Manager for the World Jewish Congress Jewish Diplomatic Corps in the Americas, Global Interfaith Lead for the World Jewish Congress Jewish Diplomatic Corps, and Liaison for Jewish Communities in the Middle East and North Africa. He earned his Master's Degree in Medieval Jewish History with a concentration on Pan-Sephardi Studies from Yeshiva University and holds a BA in Ancient Near Eastern Cultures and Abrahamic Religions from the City University of New York Baccalaureate for Unique and Interdisciplinary Studies. He is founder and editor-in-chief of HaSafardi.com, a platform dedicated to the shared and varied traditions and of the many unique groups within the Pan-Sephardi community. He's also Associate Museum Curator at Kehla Kedosha Yanina Synagogue and Museum in New York and Religious Affairs Committee, and is a National Central Council member for the Sephardic Jewish Brotherhood of America. Thank you so much, Rabbi, for joining us here today. I know it's late your time, so we really appreciate it. No, no problem. You don't have to call me Rabbi. We're, <laughs> we're friends at this point. <laughs> friends already. So before we jump into all the questions, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your own journey, your family's background, and how you kind of got into this line of work. So I don't know if I really got into it. It's just something I was kind of born into. Uh, Both my parents were born in Lebanon, and they left during the Civil War in the 1970s. So, you know, that kind of, you know, that background has always been with me. Uh, My parents then went to Israel and then went to Brazil and then found their way in America, where uh, I don't know if you know about the community in Brooklyn, but it's, they call it the SY community, but, uh, you know, I call it the greater Syrian Jewish community, where it consists of Jews from Aleppo, Damascus, uh, Egypt, Lebanon, and you kind of have this, you know, this big Arab Jewish community that kind of gets together, and it's been there from the early 1900s till now. Uh, Obviously, my family came a little bit later into that Mm -hmm. one, we came in the 90s. So, you know, this is something that's always surrounded me. Um, Sometimes I didn't even realize that I was different at all, or anything was different, or anything was influenced by the Muslim world or anything like that. So this is really much part of my identity and I didn't really know anything about it. Uh, funny enough, I was telling, you know, a couple of friends recently and uh, on a different uh, call, um, 
I said to them, you know, I didn't even know what challah was until I was older. Like, you know, it was just pita. That's I didn't know anything about braided bread or that being traditional, traditional, you know, quote unquote uh, Shabbat bread or anything like that. So, you know, really, this is just part of my identity, and I kind of find this as a an extension of myself. Um, you know, the the problem is that you know I did do this in you know when I was getting my masters to do stuff on Sephardic jewelry, but you know, after a while, you kind of wake up, you're Sephardic, go to sleep, you're Sephardic, you study Sephardic. So I kind of wanted to like take a step back, but uh, in the WJC, like that was not my focus whatsoever, but I kind of got pulled back in. And it's probably more of my fault because it's so much ingrained <laughs> in my identity yeah. that, you know, especially uh, when the Abraham Accords came and like we we're doing more stuff on Sephardic jury in general, like, you know, I would always have my nose in it because that's just, that's just me, you know. Um, in my house, we spoke uh, a mixture of Arabic, Hebrew, English, some Spanish and some French. I would never quote and say I know it, but <laughs> you know, I grew up with that type of music in my house as well. So, yeah, that's pretty much that's it in a nutshell. Like, you know, when it comes to when 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 you guess when you ask more about me, I guess there's there's a lot of layers to it also. So, are you referring more to the the Sephardic side or the Middle Eastern side or like for me, it's kind of all the same. And I kind of want to give you what you what you want. So what are you kind of aiming at, I guess, in that question? I think as well, just your family story. And I know we'll get to this a little bit later in the podcast, but far too often some of these stories aren't told. And also the, what you mentioned about challah is something that's very interesting to me because I can definitely speak about my own Jewish education and growing up in the community here in Sydney. We're kind of taught that, oh, challah is this universal symbol of Shabbat and Shabbos. So I think that point is very interesting and kind of highlights that you are, your family's story is, might be a little bit different to mine and some of the traditional stories that we've had. Yeah. So like growing up, the, we also had this, um, you know, there's a couple of times where, you know, I, I went to school and this is not really that much uh, at fault of the school where they would teach certain things and I would come back home and like tell my parents about it. And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about, you know, or uh, for instance, there are like two things that kind of sting me when I was younger that I did that um, kind of like, I went back on it. So for example, on, on Hanukkah, my uh, my community or my family's tradition, we have a couple of communities throughout the, the, the Middle East that do it in like Libya and also Lebanon and in some parts of Syria, uh, where they light an extra candle for Hanukkah. And some say the reason is for, um, you know, they when they came from, from the Spanish Inquisition and they landed, it was during Hanukkah, so they lit a lamp or whatever. Uh, some people say it's an older tradition that it was actually takes took place in Spain. Whatever the reason is, uh, there's like articles about it. Actually, one of my my my, my website Hasafadi actually has an article on the topic, but I didn't know that was a thing. And I told my parents, they're like, "What are you What are you doing? I lighting this, leaving this extra candle?" I was like, "Oh, that's what we did in Lebanon." I was like, "It's stupid. It's not the halacha, whatever." And like they didn't know the reason behind it. And you know that we kind of did away with it. And I felt terrible later on in life when I learned about it. And then I brought it back. Uh, like another thing when I was turning. Uh, when it, so another thing that we, bar mitzvah, we never really use that term. Uh, we use the term libis tefillin, which means wearing of tefillin, just because like reading from the Torah wasn't a big deal for Sephardim, because like even younger kids were able to do it even before their bar mitzvah. The bigger deal was putting on tefillin. So that's why it was called, that was the tradition it was called. So um, I remember my father trying to teach me how to wear the talit or Ashkenazim say talit. Uh, you know, even minor differences in pronunciation, yeah, yeah. you know, there's like, uh, that's, that's a whole other, other thing about, you know, publication of Jewish texts and what's published, what isn't. 
but and I won't I won't delve too too deep into that one. But um, so my father taught me how to how to wear it, and I I remember like I never really knew the difference between reform, conservative, orthodox, because I was just Sephardic. I didn't have any of this stuff. But I knew there was like I went to an orthodox school, and there was like like an ick factor of like oh that's like a reform way to do it. So like I was a little kid, I was like oh I know that's how the reform do it. Like we don't wear it like that. And then my dad like said okay fine you don't have to wear it that way. And then like later on in life I realized that like that's all the Sephardim used to wear it. And that's how a lot of the Orthodox, you know, um, Orthodox Jews used to wear it. Instead of kind of wearing it like a, like a, like a Superman, as I call it, it was kind of worn like around you, like kind of hugs around you. I don't know if you've seen, I wish I had yeah, like pictures I've to show you now. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's like the more old school way to wear, uh, to wear it. So those are like weird things that like, you know, when you're, when you're a quote unquote native, you don't know all the reasons why you do things um so when you try to pass it on to your kids and then you see other people doing something else you're like oh that's like the wrong way but that's what kind of put me into this this um this mode of keep on studying keep on learning kind of figure out what's going on why do we do this why do we do that you know when i was also when i was younger i um you probably are aware of this like i didn't know what mariv was i thought it was like another tefillah that like another prayer that ashkenazim did we did aravit and then ashkenazim did mariv and i was like is that like a fifth one? Like, uh, is like a fourth one? Like, Where did this one come from? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. And then I realized in general, like when, when, when you're in this like mode of like, you know, trying to do comparison when you're not really trying to do comparison, just because your life is so much different than everyone else that's calling themselves Jewish, that you kind of like, you know, reflect on it. Like, oh, what's different? And why is it different? And then you constantly have this question of why, why, why? Because you're kind of like this minority in a, uh, in a majority setting. And like my community was, you know, majority, like we were mostly Sephardim, but when I went to school, I went to an Ashkenazi school and it was very different in that case. And sometimes I even like face prejudice, especially like weirdly enough, after 9-11, I was viewed as like the enemy to some like of the students, which was like a little ridiculous. But, um, you know, it was just things that I kind of like got over and it kind of made me stronger in a sense. Even like the rabbis would say, you know, pretty nasty things along the lines like, oh, Sephardim didn't contribute to anything to American Jewry or world Jewry or any of this type of stuff. And it's like a little bit ridiculous, but uh, that's kind of what pushed me to like study more because there wasn't enough going around. Uh, you know, even I learned in Sephardic schools, you know, there weren't so many, so many of the teachers learned it in what Sephardic Jewry was in a sense of like historical, like halakha, fine, whatever. But uh, they actually opened up a school to teach teachers called the Eligor Franco Institute which teaches like, you know, Jewish women teachers how to teach the Sephardi way, the Sephardic way. And it's like, this is something that's been done for the past 15 years, and it's made a really big, big impact on how they teach kids in, at least in New York, New York, New Jersey, because we're kind of like a, a yeah. twin, uh, twin communities. But that's, it's just like, things are just kind of moving in a more positive direction in that sense. I think that's that's firstly to end on that though it's really good to hear that things are slowly moving in the direction they should be. I have noticed so that you're using the term Sephardim um instead of Mizrahi or Mizrahim. Um so I was wondering why you're only using the term Sephardim. Is there a reason you're not using the term Mizrahi? Is that not something you identify with? So two funny things actually now um thinking about it. You know, my parents didn't know what Mizrahi was and they didn't know who Hashem was either which is very weird when I say it like that, but we never called God Hashem. That's like a very Ashkenazi way of, you know, of approaching God and not saying his name and 
like not saying God's name in vain, even when you're saying it in a very nice fashion. So going back to the term Mizrahi, that's it's a very like recent term that only started to develop more, uh, you know, maybe a little before 1948 when it started to refer to Jews from the Middle East and even North Africa. And that's a term that I don't really identify with. And I think traditionally, even people that call themselves Mizrahi today, if you ask their grandfathers or their fathers, like, oh, are you Mizrahi? They'd be like, no, I'm Sephardic. Or no, I'm Sephardic uh, Iranian. Or I'm Sephardic Iraqi. Or I'm Sephardic any, you know, insert country they were from or region they were from. The term Mizrahi, if you like, kind of translate the word literally, just means Easterner. And like, you know, the typical quote-unquote Mizrahi you would think of is a Moroccan Jew. And the, the word Morocco, Maghrib, you know, in Arabic, it literally means West. So there seems to be a, like, question at the end of the day, when people were using this term, you know, where was their heart? Was it in, was it in Israel or was it in Germany? Where was it when they were saying someone is Eastern in that sense? Um, so I know a lot of people like to use it, say that they're trying to reclaim the term Mizrahi. And I, I just, I don't find it, I, I, I kind of find it unnecessary. And I think the word Sephardi kind of defines us because... Sefarad or is not, first of all, even in the rabbinic sense, it doesn't mean Spain. It means Al-Andalus, which is like more southern Spain and not Catalonia. But then Sefarad in general always just meant a state of mind. It was a, it was a school of thought, you know, delving into the philosophy of, you know, the Greeks, of the Arabs, Jewish philosophy, you know, delving into the grammar, Hebrew grammar, uh, poetry, sciences, all that stuff is Sefarad. Um, I always jokingly say that the first Sephardi uh, was actually Saadia Gaon, who was actually born in Egypt and then became the head of the the school of um, Surah in, I don't remember what year, maybe 600. But, you know, even though he never even went to Spain, I would call him the first Sephardi because he was the first person to, you know, uh, you know, do philosophy, do sciences, you know, you know, focus more on Hebrew grammar, which... To us, it seems very obvious, like, oh, Hebrew grammar, that just makes sense. But back then, even people like Rashid didn't even realize that, you know, there was a three-root system. Where in, in the Arab-Jewish world, there was a three-root system. And they understood it because they did comparative linguistic analysis between Arabic and Hebrew, and they just learned more about it in Aramaic. So, Sefarad is always a state of mind, and it's not a locale. And just because you your family's not really from there, doesn't mean you're not Sefaradi. And like any, and it's a misnomer. And like a lot of times people from the Spanish Portuguese community, like I'll hear them now say, oh, you're not really Sephardic, you know, you're, 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 you're Mizrahi and this and that. And it's like, I'm sure you would call Maimonides Mizrahi <laughs> also then. Like he didn't speak Spanish. I'm just letting you know now. <laughs> like maybe he understood some Latin, but I don't think he spoke Spanish. A very interesting point. I've never heard that perspective on the term before. I've, it's always, again, from my perspective and as someone who I've grown up in the Jewish community here, um, I've been through the Jewish youth movements, involved in the Jewish student union, and now working in the Jewish community. Unfortunately, these aren't the conversations we're having. And I'm learning a lot from hearing your stories as well, like the Chala and not referring to Hashem as Hashem. It's quite interesting for me. And I think this leads me to my next question, which is these stories are so often forgotten um, and they're not shared as much as they should be. Or if they are shared, they're only shared in the context of talking about Jews from the Middle East and North Africa's dispossession. What do you think as a community we should be doing to better share these stories, but also have these really important conversations at our Shabbat tables, in our community meetings, in our halls, at our, at our different respective events and in our social circles? 
So sadly, a lot of times when it comes to our social circles, when we talk about like, you know, Sephardic Jewry, Middle Eastern Jewry, whatever you want to call it, it always kind of boils down to like, oh, let's talk about food. Mm-hmm. Like even like when it's talking about, pas- oh, you guys could have rice on Passover. It's like, first things first, we could have a lot more than rice. <laughs> and then, you know, second of all, um, you know, there's more to us than our food culture. You know, uh, even, you know, even a lot of like things like the Haskalah movement that, you know, a lot of Ashkenazim were, by the way, I didn't know about the Haskalah movement until later on in life also, which probably I should have learned from my Ashkenazi schools, but they kind of failed me on that one. But that one blew my mind where like, oh, they started studying Greek philosophy and they were like, what's going on? And it's like, that's been part of our identity always, you know, but, you know, thinking of like poetry and philosophy and stuff like that, just getting more into depth about, um, you know, our our culture in a sense where you're studying our works. You know, there's a lot of stuff from the Sephardic world that hasn't been republished or reprinted. And then sometimes um, it's even edited in a, in a sense where um, there's a, I have one example right now where, um, I don't know if you know the Ben Ishchai. Uh, yeah. So he was like a, a rabbi in Iraq. I think in the 1800s, I always forget the year, so I apologize that I'm not right. But, you know, uh, late 1800s, and, you know, he wrote a teshuvah about, you know, women's head covering. Not a teshuvah, he wrote like a book about, you know, women's laws, and he wrote about, you know, women's head covering if they need to do it. And he said, no, that they don't need to. And this book, this work was originally written in Arabic. But if you find the Hebrew translations today, they completely edit that out, that it doesn't say that. Oh, wow. So you'll have a lot of times where, like, you have a lot of editing of what Sephardic rabbis have said, or you won't even have some of their stuff even published. So this is like a, this is an issue that needs to be kind of addressed and rectified. And sadly, even the Sephardic world don't don't even know about it anymore because they've been so much engrossed in this. You know, let's be, let's obviously, at the end of the day, I don't like talking about being Sephardic all the time. I just want to be Am Yisrael. I want to be the nation of Israel, you know, be one, you know, one nation. But sadly, there are so many wrongs that need to be uh, uh, right, in a sense, where we need to get back to an equilibrium, where we're all kind of like equal in that sense, where we're all understanding that, oh, wait, you know, I don't pronounce rabbi as rabbi, it's actually pronounced the rabbi, you know what I mean? Like, there are, there are, you know, there's traditions that are kind of being lost, that kind of need to be regained. And this is something that we could, you know, I'm, I'm, I, you know this is something that the Sephardic communities need to take upon themselves also, because we can't really rely on others to help us with it. And obviously people can help us with it. Um, and when it comes to how can we have these conversations, it's, you know, let's talk about something outside of food. You know, what's, yeah. you know, let's talk about, you know, just plainly traditions. Like just once you have a kind of casual conversation like we're having now, random things kind of like pop up. Like I'm sure there's a lot of things that you have that you'd love to share with me and I'd love to hear it. I know this is not kind of the, the focus of the conversation, but I'd love to just hang out and we'll just We'll be talk, here for you know? hours. <laughs> yeah, we'll be here for hours. And I'm happy to do that. I'd love to learn more about, you know, Australian Jewish, uh, you know, culture and stuff like that. And I know it's a, evolved a lot after the Holocaust and it's something that's very interesting and people don't know that and how it's like very much, you know, based on that almost in a sense. It's a response yeah. to it. So, you know, we just need to have real open conversations with not that, not that mission of like, oh, let's kind of tokenize them in a sense, or like, oh, let's talk about their food, or they're different, or oh, you guys, you know, were kicked out of the Middle East and North Africa. Like, you know, in my in my case with Lebanon, like some, you know, Jews were kicked out. Some of them like were kind of forced, and that's more due to the war with, uh, you know, with the PLO coming in. But a lot of them weren't kicked out. You know, my my family left because the civil war, just like 
you know, you have probably have a very large Lebanese community that isn't yeah. Jewish. And a lot of them left because of the civil war, not necessarily because they were kicked out. There are more Lebanese people living outside of Lebanon than in Lebanon. Inside of Lebanon, it's not doing so great now either. So that's a more reason to leave. But, um, you know, not all of them are kicked out. And we shouldn't always be viewed in that lens or this orientalized lens where it's like, they're so exotic. You know, we're just other, you know, we're, we're Jews. We have our perspective, our history, our story. And it's worth just kind of discussing without orientalizing in a sense. Very interesting. I look at my own conversations I have with my friends and the conversations I've had in my Jewish youth movements. And unfortunately, all those conversations, when I can think back and we've spoken about Jews from Middle East and North Africa, it's been about, oh, but they get to eat rice on Pesach. Oh, oh let's talk about what happened. And they got kicked out of um, the Middle East. And this is what happened to them afterwards. And unfortunately, I look at some of my friends who do have um, Sephardi heritage. Or, and I don't think they are aware or they haven't learned much about their own traditions and their meaning through the school system as well. And on that point, I was wondering what you think about representation. And obviously we don't want to tokenize an entire community and a diverse community as well. But yeah. do you think there is a level of importance that should be placed on representation, particularly in the school system for younger kids so they can see that their cultures and their traditions are being reflected in our community? So it's something that I, I personally struggle with because for me, I I want to kind of get past this like this oh we're, we're we're different like for me at the end of the day I just want to be we're all Jews and that's it but I kind of see this this issue of like like what I said earlier like things have not been equally distributed culture wise you know what I mean um so you know at the same time I'm also like in a sense okay with tokenization but only when it's done tastefully you know when it's not like oh you know, they're going to bring their food culture today, you know, like when they actually talk about their family's history and story. I think a lot of people today, especially the older generation, are starting to open up about what their history was like. You know, you'll, you're starting to see more books in the past like 10 years about Jews from the Middle East and North Africa, of like, you know, uh, biographies and like things like that, that are just coming out. So even just having a conversation of like, you know, similar to, to how people have conversations with Holocaust survivors, and I'm not saying these people are any, you know, Holocaust survivors, or anything like that, just having a, a kind of an interview of how these people lived their lives before, you know, they were either kicked out, forced out, you know, general, where they were just moving out of the Middle East, because that's a whole world that's never going to come back. Just like how we're kind of like preserving a lot of the, you know, pre-Holocaust world, and everyone kind of wrote about it and talk about it, and there's so much history and written about it. And you kind of get an idea of like we were in some areas we were really part of the culture, like in Germany. And then at some points we just weren't. And it's interesting to see where the Jews were. Like in Iraq, there's there was like a kind of like a joke where you couldn't even have a wedding on Shabbat because all the Jews, all the musicians were Jews. Mm -hmm. So no Muslim could have a wedding, no Christian can have a wedding, no one was able to have a wedding during Shabbat because all the Jews were busy, you know. And like stuff like that also in uh, uh, Saloniki in like Greece, Greece, Turkey, depending on which, when it was like, you know, in the, um, in the docks, like everyone would speak Judeo-Spanish, like even the non-Jews would speak it. And on Shabbat, the docks were closed. Like this is like a history and understanding that people just don't know. And just like to even read about it, to like maybe do a book club, read, you know, works of like Devinar, who does works on, you know, Jews from that region or, you know just starting to read about it and to kind of reclaim it. Because even the thing is, we could always say, oh, let's go to our Sephardic friend and ask them questions. 
like sadly the re reality is they might not even know it themselves yeah. and this is not a it's not about reclaiming sephardic history it's reclaiming jewish history that we're, we're missing out on and it's really sad to see that go and i think you know with this um kind of resurgence of uh of the abrahamic chords people are kind of seeing oh wait there's value to this again and kind of, people are kind of tapping back into it they have to do it in a more tasteful manner people need to think about it more but you know there's a history that it's part of it's jewish history and it needs to be understood that way and it's also recognizing that it's jewish history and how significantly jews contributed to the culture of wherever they were from to the lifestyle to professional to all different types of profession, to business, to art, to entertainment. And all of those stories are important, no matter where they are in the world, that we share as the story yeah. of the Jewish people. And I, so, I really resonate with that, actually. And the World Jewish Congress is actually going to be working on a traveling exhibition where it actually celebrates Jews in the Middle East and North Africa by their contributions they made to the, you know, the countries that they lived in. So whether they were part of a feminist movement in the early 19th century, or they were, you know, pretty much the Hollywood directors of, of the Middle East, so to speak. Uh, we also did it in Bollywood. I know that's not our scope, but we also helped run Bollywood yeah. as well. Um, you know, with, with also with mu uh, musicians, you know, uh, you know, singers, uh, just even, even with the founding of Iraq, like the, 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 the finance minister was a Jew as well. Yeah. And like, he made huge contributions to early Iraq that kind of changed the way that, their whole system you know was developed at the time obviously things change iraq's very yeah. different now but you know when you think of early iraq iraqi history he's there you know Sassoon. so you know these are these are people that are being forgotten about by arabs in the middle east and north africa and sadly by jews like jews if i say the name uh you know Heskel uh, Sassoon or togo mizrahi or leila murad uh, anyone maybe outside of my community because my community gets is much very aware of these type of people um you know a lot of people wouldn't know who they are so you know it's important to educate it not because it's sephardic history because it's jewish history and that's that's really the main the main point i'm trying to make when i keep on saying we're amisrael it's not about um you know doing this for sephardic jews it's doing it for jews you know, once we realize that we're one nation, we're one people, that's when you realize, like, wait, I have an invested interest in this as well. And just the same way that someone goes to their grandfather or whatever, when they want to learn about their history, go to your, you know, maybe go to your Sephardic friend's grandfather, or you go to your Sephardic friend and you learn about your history because that's your history as well. It's also that Jewish pride and unity that builds, like learning about and understanding that there are Jews from all around the world. We come from this rich culture and history. And, but we have things in common and we have things different, but like we're all part of that same tradition. And I think that's one of the biggest way that we can build that sense of Jewish unity and Jewish pride around the world. So I, re I really resonate with that. But I wanted to touch on something that you mentioned briefly about the Abraham Accords. Obviously, the Abraham Accords have triggered a whole bunch of new diplomatic and trade relations between Israel specifically and the Arab world. But I was wondering if you could touch on a little bit what the Abraham Accords mean for your community and Jews who come from the North Africa region and the Middle East? So, it you know, it's a bit of a mixed bag in a sense where, you know, the UAE and Bahrain, you know, the, the UAE has like a very much of a expat uh, community where a lot of them are very, very new. I don't even think there is a Jewish 
a UAE uh, citizen yet. Oh, you know, wow. I, I'm sure there will be soon because it's very it's based on merit. So I'm sure there's uh, one you know ones that are very much merit worthy. <laughs> uh, and then Bahrain, you know, the Jews have been there since the Talmudic times, but like even more so in the past hundred years because uh, I don't I mentioned earlier uh, Sassoon. I don't know if you know the Sassoon family. But pretty much, you know, the Rothschilds are the Western version of the Sassoons. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, and then also the Kaduri family. Uh, so they kind of brought people to places like India. Uh, they brought people to Shanghai. There's a lot of books actually written about the Sassoon family now. So they also brought people to Bahrain as well. And, you know, that's that, that community is like 100 years old. So there's not that many Jews that came from those regions in particular. Um, so in the beginning when there was the Abraham Accords, like obviously everyone's happy about it, you know, Arab world doing it, but like, you know, the UAE and Bahrain never had issues with Israel. It was always like, so that's why they call it a normalization. There's no peace. It's normalization. And a lot of the Jews never really came from there, but they were excited about it. Obviously it's the first step. And then once you had Morocco join the shell, that was really, that was really a big deal because a lot of Jews from the Middle East, North Africa, a lot of the a big portion of them come from the Maghreb, which is, you know, Morocco, Tunisia, Libya, so Algeria. So, like, it was very exciting. Um, and I think people are still excited about it and they want to see what happens next. Uh, you know, so it's not, it's not like everyone was excited, mixed feelings, but once Morocco came in, it was even more excited. But this is not to like downplay UAE or Bahrain, it was a huge yeah. step. And even for me, when I visited the UAE, uh, you know, I had like a very profound experience going there. I'm Lebanese, like that's where my family's from. When I went to the UAE, it kind of almost felt like a homecoming, even though it's a very different Arab. You know, uh, Lebanon, the Levant is very different than, you know, the UAE. The Gulf Arabs and like Levantine Arabs are very different. But when I was there, it still felt like a very homey vibe. Um, you know, I had this experience, which I don't know if I should really like admit to this story, but... <laughs> I'll I'll do it because I think I think it's an important one. Um, one of the ministers invited us to their uh, to their farm, and he was you know it was like in a big huge semicircle, and he was he was talking about the beauties of the UAE and like talking about Israel and the UAE peace and how the UAE is a place of tolerance and like obviously he's building it up, but I've, and I'll I'll admit when I was there I really did see it like the UAE is really like a special place. Um, and while he was talking about this, I started to tear up and I started to get like very emotional. And I just started like bawling, but it was like very, like very embarrassing because everyone was like, you know, everyone is a semicircle. Everyone could see me. <laughs> but, um, you know, as soon as he was done talking, uh, someone from across the, the other side came towards me. And this person wasn't part of our delegation. They were part of the UAE's like um, we did it with an embassy. So they had someone from the embassy for, uh, that was actually Lebanese, but they were part of the UAE uh, embassy. And they were also crying. And they also ran up to me and we held each other. And like, the reason why is because we we're both Lebanese. We both knew we were Lebanese. We only met each other, I think, maybe that day or a couple of days before, but we didn't really talk much. But we all, we all, we both felt like the UAE became something that Lebanon was supposed to be. Yeah. You know, for us, when we think of Lebanon, especially Lebanese Jews, we're like, we have this nostalgia. Everyone's always telling us, oh, the Paris of the Middle East. You know, Muslim Jews and Christians live together peacefully, whatever. And 
she was a Lebanese Muslim, uh, Christian and I'm a Lebanese Jew. And we both just felt that the UAE was achieving something that Lebanon was supposed to. So there was like a very emotional experience for us. And like, we literally, we looked for each other and we hugged each other. And we both knew and we felt it. Yeah. And like, anytime I see any of like my, my Lebanese friends or my Syrian friends or Egyptian friends or whatever, when they visit the UAE, they feel, they feel something there. Like, even if it's not their, you know, brand of Arab or whatever it is, you know, they still feel that emotional connection. And I think a lot of Jews who aren't from there either feel that connection as well. So even when I'm like, you know, when I speak to people in the UAE, they're not really like, oh, what are the, what's the propaganda we need to like, you know, say <laughs> that the king told us to do? Like they really investigated and really felt, like look deep inside. This is when you talk to the actual Emiratis. Like they dug deep inside. They'd be like, oh, what do I, why do I like the Jews? Like, what do I have in common with the Jews? You know, we're both came from this like Bedouin society. We became like a larger nation, a conglomerate of like other tribes became one large nation. Like the Jews did it with 12, we did it with seven, you know, like there's this connection there. And then we have our, our obviously our linguistic connections and we have the religious connections and the prophets and all this stuff. And like, it really is a homecoming for family, not just for Sephardic Jews or Middle Eastern Jews, but for all Jews, where you're like kind of meeting with your cousins again. And even though a lot of us aren't even from that, you know, the Gulf, you know, you still feel it. Um, when I went to the um, the Grand Mosque there in Abu Dhabi, the Sheikh Zayed Mosque, um, first things first, it's it's beautiful to the point where it's like kind of sad when if you're waiting for a Beit Hamikdash, like <laughs> they have that. That's only that's only one of their mosques, you know. What I mean? <laughs> but um, you know, it was just I was walking. We were walking with a tour guide, and he was talking like he was telling us about you know where this came from in the world, where this got imported from, whatever. And then, you know, we hear like someone reciting the Quran in the background. And he said, oh, we have this tradition uh, ever since the, the you know, the, the, the king passed away to recite the Quran in a different Arabic music scale every day. Oh, wow. And I'm listening to it. And I said, oh, is this Makam Nawa? And he's like, he's like, I think so. He's like, how do you know? I was like, I don't know. Go, do you know? He's like, no, I don't know. He's like, go ask the other guy. So he asked the other tour guide, and he's like, yeah. He's like, how'd you know? And I said, this is the same tune we use every Friday night. So in the Levantine and also Egyptian and, um, you know, Turkish tradition, every Friday night, I think some of them do a little differently, but we, I think it's mostly Nahua or Nahawan. Um, we do that Arabic music scale. And then for Shabbat morning, uh, we switch the Shabbat music scale based on that week's perasha. So if it's like a sad one, we'll do a sad music scale. If it's a happy one, we'll do another one. So there's like a couple of music scales we choose from. So I'm very much familiar with it. I'm obviously not a you know singer at all. My voice is terrible. But I was able to recognize it and have that conversation with them and like connect with them on a deeper level. And, you know, obviously that's not something where an Ashkenazi Jew could kind of fill in that void. That's somewhere where I can, because that's, you know, that's part of the same culture, same identity. Yeah, that's your history and your story as well. Exactly. So that's kind of how it kind of, you know, taps into it and how we kind of become like the ambassadors, so to speak. This this doesn't mean that all Jews can become, you know, ambassadors or to to the UAE. They can. Obviously, we all have a shared connection. We're all cousins. But the way that I kind of look at it is that, you know, uh, Sephardic Jews, maybe we were closer to our fifth cousin, 
and now you, you, this is your first time meeting your fifth cousin. So like you kind of need me to be the intimator, intimator. And it's not like, oh, once I kind of connect you, I leave by, that's it. You know, this is us, you know, bringing a family together. You know, this is not bridging the cap because that means you're going to walk over me after. This is more like, no, this is us bringing the family together. I think it, on that point, do you see um, Safari Jews playing a specific role in kind of this normalization process that's going on between Israel and the Middle East and North Africa? I think so. But also at the same time, you know, as as I like, I very much think about it that way. Sometimes, you know, I kind of still, because I come from like the 1970s Arab world, you know, once you kind of like your parents leave from the 70s, you're still in the 70s. Like even my my Hebrew, my slang, my Hebrew slang is like from the 80s, like when my parents lived in Israel. Like I'm very much uh, stuck in a certain era. But, you know, the Arab world is also changing where it's becoming more Western. So there is an avenue for like, you know, meeting with them that way. But, you know, to, to get something more deeper, you know, culturally, yeah, I think the Sephardic world 100% is a, is a way to kind of like reach out to it. It's not the only avenue, but I think it's it's a, it's a very good card, you know. And I, I don't mean it in a way that like we're trying to manipulate the Arab world or anything like that. Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> this is like something very emotional. Like when I was, when we met through the WJC uh, delegation, the World Jewish Congress, we had a delegation of the Jewish Diplomatic Corps. Um, you know, we also met with these featured diplomats in the UAE. Who, it's called uh, Agda. I don't remember the exact, uh, that's like the, you know, the abbreviation, but pretty much it's an organization. I mean, it's a school that trains the next generations of like diplomats. So if you went to school for something and you want to become a diplomat later on, you go to the school and it kind of gives you the oomph to become a diplomat. So when we met with him, all of us, it didn't matter where your background was from, we automatically all hit it off on the first night. Like we had like dinner that night and everyone became best friends. Everyone exchanged numbers. Everyone was excited for each other. Obviously, you know, people that came from, you know, those regions had a different like level, not better or worse, just a different form of familiarity. But for the most part, it, you know, all Jews can have that opportunity. It's, it's a really important point, actually. And I know I have time now for about two more questions, even though I have a lot of questions I want to ask. But specifically on Morocco, um, as you mentioned, there's obviously a lot of Jews with Moroccan ancestry or heritage. And a lot of Jews identify as Moroccan Jews. What have you seen the significance of the Abraham Accords in Morocco and that new normalization um, relationship between Israel and Morocco? What have you seen that look like for Jews with Moroccan heritage? So with Moroccan Jews in general, like the law for Morocco even before the Abraham Accords was always there. Yeah. You know, yeah. there was always there was always that like people would go there for, you know, Jewish life cycles like bar mitzvahs, weddings, whatever. You know, they go there for Pesach. Um, so like even, you know, even Jews doesn't like in America or other places would get their ethrogim from there. Like the, you know, in Morocco. Like so anytime Israel has like their Shemitah year, people would get their Moroccan ethrogim even before the Abraham Accords. So like this Jewish connection it's always still there. They're still, I wouldn't say the, the largest, but there's a very large community there. Um, I think around 2000 now. Um, and, you know, in 2017, the King of Morocco, they like recently kind of revamped their constitution and they, they focused a lot on, you know, these other uh, ethnic groups. And they said like the Hebrews, you know, they, they recognize Hebrews with other uh 
other other people of Moroccan heritage as being part of really being part of the essence of Morocco. And after the Abraham Accords, you know, the king, I think it was maybe seven months ago, like called the community together, you know, kind of revamped it, like he said, I'm going to support you even more now. And not even that, we have a mandate to reach out to Moroccan Jews in the diaspora, you know, to reach out to them, to strengthen the relationship. So they really are making that, you know, that extra step because they have the diaspora, you know, like I, I use the word diaspora very lightly because obviously diaspora means coming out of Israel, but, um, you know, they really feel that connection and Moroccan Jews feel that connection also. It doesn't mean they're going to disregard Israel because that's, you know, we're, we're the Jewish people. But we still have a relationship with the, the places that we lived before. You know, we built just like how, you know, people are like, oh, you're influenced by the cultures you live in. Like, no, we also influence those cultures as well. Yeah. You know, um, you know, like the word Arab Jew, I know sometimes gets thrown around and people get very uh, decisive, you know, like very angry about it. But, you know, if, the thing is, Jews help, you know, the word Arab doesn't really mean people from Arabia anymore. It's evolved. You know, once, once, once conquering from, you know, all the way from China, all the way to Morocco and like, you know, it's a very large area. After a while, it, it kind of became a crucible of different cultures and identities and became something new. And during the, uh, the Tanzimat era, uh, which is like, you know, late 1800s period onwards, you kind of had this, uh, this, this pan-Arabism going on. And, you know, Jews took a large part of that. And Jews took a large part of early Arab culture and society as well. You know, a lot of Jews translated a lot of works into, from Greek to Arabic or Aramaic into to Arabic. Or, you know, added to the philosophy, added to the sciences, and made that culture what it is today. So Jews have very much part in Arab culture and identity. So it's very much part of theirs as it is to ours. Um, I think I might have might have uh, made a no, no. I think I think it's a really important point though, because it's definitely again speaking for myself here. I definitely haven't really thought about this topic in the sense of understanding just how significant. I've thought about it, but probably not in as much depth as I would have liked in hindsight. But I haven't thought about just how much Jews from these regions would have actually contributed and connected with their cultures and. I've heard yeah. the discussions, as you mentioned, about Arab Jews. Do we call them Arab Jews? What does that mean? Do they like that? Yeah. Is that appropriate? Is there a better term? But I think the way you summed it up was really important, is that, yes, the Abraham Accords, amazing, and all these conversations happening in the diplomatic and trade space for, regarding to Israel, but for Jews from the region, it's it's something, it's a different game. It's, it means something different. It's an emotional connection, as you've spoken about. And yeah. just to kind of end off with, after I know we touched on a lot of things here, but what is your kind of the one thing you want to leave to anyone who would be listening about? And we spoke about researching and learning and um, asking the questions and understanding the stories, but is there one particular thing you want to leave with anyone who could be listening about understanding the community and Sephardi jury? Big question. I'm sorry. Very, very big question. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really like kind of like I, I you said you didn't think about it in that way, and I'm sure a lot of people didn't. Even people that are Sephardim didn't really think about it. like, wait a second, yeah, maybe I, I did contribute. You know, our people did contribute to Arab culture and society, and that's very much part of ours and it is to theirs. You know, um, so I think really just to have these like really deeper thoughts rather than uh, slogans or you know graffiti of like, you know, kind of like people kind of sometimes throw terms out there, 
and there's no definition. It's just like uh, I can't think of one that's not as decisive, right? I mean, like very, <laughs> like people will just say like uh, <laughs> try to find one that won't get me in trouble. But, <laughs> but you know, like people will throw terms out there here and there, and like you, as soon as I'm saying this, I'm I'm sure a lot of them come to your mind. They'll throw terms out there, and it already has their own definition to it. Or people have these other definitions of it, but like, don't worry about those terms. Have the conversation, you know, you know, like, oh, someone, you know, like the word Arab Jew. Maybe we could use the word Arab Jew, right? Like, someone would be like, oh, you know, Jews were dimmies and this and that. And like, yeah, okay, there was good times and bad times. There was a lot of bad times, a lot of good times. But like, think about it. Like, this is like a, a large time scale, you know, and you can't really compare it to what happened to us in Europe. Europe was was really bad. What happened to us? And I'm not saying it wasn't really bad in the Middle East depending on the time, depending on the place, it was really bad. And sometimes it was really good, you know, and you can't really look at so much history in a tweet, you know, mm. there's more, there's more to history than a tweet. It's not like, it's like, that's just a graffiti. It just looks nice. But in reality is you need to really get thinking about it in depth. You need to really think about like, what does it mean to be an Arab Jew? Or what does it mean to be a Sephardic Jew? Or what does it mean to just be a Jew? Yeah. You know, like, is it, is it Torah? Is it is it locks and bagels? Like, what is it? You know, like at the end of the day, you need to like really look deep inside and understand what it means to be Jewish, what it means to be an Arab Jew. Am I an Arab Jew? Are all Jews uh, Arab? What does that even mean? Because like at the end of the day, you know, our, our, you know, Sephardic culture went to Europe, went to the Ashkenazim. Like we didn't live in vacuums in our own little vacuums. Like the Shulchan Aruch did go to Europe. You know what I mean? Like Harambam's works went to Europe and sadly got burnt by some, you know, couple of Jews. I'm not going to say any names, but like, you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> our works were, were were passed back and forth. You know, we did have dialogue. We were influencing each other. Um, you know, there's two things when I went to, when I was in, um, when I was in Argentina, we went to the, with, you know, the Jewish diplomatic court. We went to the, um, the German ambassador there. And we said we were talking about like Jewish identity and stuff like that. And I said, all you know, Jewish identity has a lot that came out of Germany. And it's not just Holocaust, whatever, you know, like you know, scholars like Rashi, whether I agree with them or not, you know, highly influenced Jewish identity. And that has a lot to do with the culture that they were in there. Um, for better or for worse, at the end of the day, Germany influenced Jewry, you know. And then I and when I went to the Spanish embassy in DC. Or, you know, with the Jewish diplomatic corps, you know, I told them, you know, we were talking and I said, you know, you guys have a very large diaspora. And they're like, what do you mean? Like every, a lot of Jews identify as being Sephardic Jews. And like, you know, whether they speak Spanish or not, a lot of what they identify with comes from Spain. And the same thing could be said about Iraq, right? You could say the same thing about the Talmud Bavli and all this stuff. Like it comes from there. Is it being influenced highly and stuff like that? I wouldn't say that necessarily. You know, a lot of it's, you know, keeping itself. At the same time, it's also bringing other other cultures and identities as well. You know, we're very much uh, a universal people. But at the same time, we're still the Jewish people. And we still have, we kind of like, uh, this is not an insult to any other cultures, but we koshered things in a sense where, you know, we took things, even in the, in the, in the Bible, we, you know, we took things from other cultures and we made it our own. And like people need to understand what does it mean to be Jewish, and I think you know being Sephardic, being Ashkenaz, all that. That's I'm I'm everything. I'm Ashkenaz. I'm Sephardic. I'm everything. You know, 
And, you know, the more that we realize that we're one people, the more that you realize, wait a second, I have a large gap in my understanding of Jewish history. Like right now, uh, my ho hopefully my takeaway from this whole talk, and I, and I apologize, maybe I went all over the place. <laughs> but, you know, I hope the takeaway here is that you feel that you're lacking in your Jewish history and your culture. And you want to learn more about your own Jewish culture because it's not just mine, you know. Uh, not to be in a negative sense, you know, I always tell people like, you know, I lost six million relatives in the Holocaust. You know, we lost millions of relatives in the Inquisition. We lost, we lost everyone, but we also learned a lot. We also gained a lot. We also did a lot of things, and all of that's Jewish identity, Jewish culture. We're one people, and you know, all of our history is is our history. I think it's a really almost it's a beautiful point to end on. It's something that I speak about a lot um, is the idea of how do we build Jewish unity? And we mentioned this earlier, how do we build Jewish pride is we have to understand the diversity of our, of the Jewish people. But also at the same time, we do all have the same stories. We have shared values. We have shared traditions and understanding how those manifest in different ways and how we were influenced by different cultures is so important in building and strengthening the Jewish community worldwide today so thank you thank you so much for sitting down with me I know it's late at night but I really love this chat I learned a lot personally I'm going to go think about a lot of things and research and I really appreciate your honesty and transparency and kind of sitting down and having this really really important chat with me no for sure you could definitely reach out to me I'm always happy to answer questions you know go more into depth so and thank you so much Thank you so much for listening to The Jewish World. Make sure to subscribe and follow the Executive Council of Australian Jury on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or TikTok to stay up to date.